Hello and welcome to Grow Up Summer School, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and this week on the show, we will be continuing with our strategy toolkit. Every day this week, we'll be dropping one new episode each day to give you even more opportunities to grow on everything from how to brand a startup to how to hone those presentation skills to today, how to think like a futurist. Today, we're talking to Nick Badminton, Chief Futurist at Futurist.com. Nick has advised some of the world's most impactful companies, including NASA, Google, Microsoft, United Nations, and IDEO. And today, he's here to advise us. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Forsman and Bodenfor for sponsoring today's episode. As one of Canada's leading strategy departments and supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. Thanks very much, Michelle. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic to be here. It's always uh, it's always good to chat to people from APG and to connect with you again. I think we we first uh, met when you were working over at Ogilvy, and I was in there, and I I did did some uh, keynote presentations on future stuff way back in the day, probably about four years ago, I think. Um, so I'm, I, I, I'm a futurist. I'm a strategic foresight practitioner, chief futurist at futurist.com, and I run the think tank there. And what I do and what we do as a group is we help our clients look out 10, 20, 30 plus years to try and imagine what the futures might be and to bring evidence and narrative from those futures back to today through backcasting to try and work out what we can do about um, laying the foundation to get there. And you, you asked, how did I sort of become a futurist? And you know, prior to doing all of this, I was, uh, I was, I was running a software company in North America, but I was doing the, the, a whole bunch of stuff with, with Foresight Futures Design on the side, and I was running, running conferences as well. I used to work for Taxi, and before that, worked for DDB, before that, worked for Blast Radius and did some sort of independent stuff as well. It was always quite progressive in what I was thinking from a digital uh, strategy perspective. So I started running conferences on the side, you know, getting out the credit card, booking speakers, hoping that people would turn up and buy tickets. And we did. So since about uh, 2012, 2013, I've been engaging people on the, the subject of humanity and technology and culture and, and how futures are going to be shaped. And in the past few years, that's sort of become this, this very sort of well-established practice. And I acquired futurist.com last year off of my mentor, Glenn Heemstra, who's based over in Seattle, who's been doing futures work for for well over 40, 50 years. So that's been a real pleasure. But it sort of harks back to when I was a kid. I read a book when I was eight years old called The Osborne Book of the Future. And that really piqued my interest. It's about the same time that I picked up a laptop. I was sort of early on in terms of getting my hands on some hardware via my father. And <clears throat> really spent uh, time looking at uh, psychology and computing, artificial intelligence, organizational psychology, and how the world is working. And that sort of uh, morphed over about a 25-year career to, to start having this longer view. So instead of looking out, you know, the, the six to 18 months, looking out to the five, 10, 20, 30 plus years. And uh, it's become uh, an essential capability for modern businesses. I mean, you, you mentioned a few clients I'd worked with. Over the past couple of years, I've worked with significant um, companies and organizations, everyone from like the Bank of Canada to, to Google and, and a lot of different startups and a lot of other governmental organizations to try and work out 
this pathway to our futures. So I've sort of stumbled into this, but almost purposefully and with some passion for, for futures work. But it built on really nicely in terms of the strategic work that I did around data, advertising, consumer insights, and also uh, software and, and, and consumer engagement over the, the past few years. So I'm curious, can you give us a bit of a flavor of the type of projects you might like? What does NASA come to you with? What does what does Google ask of you? Can you give us a, an example of a, of a brief they might have for you? Yeah, it, it, it's it's less of a brief and more more like companies are, are in pain and they realize that they they don't have the big vision or they don't really know what's out there and what's going to affect them really. So it, it doesn't really come in as like oh, here's a brief, deliver against that brief, and it can be as simple as hiring me for a keynote or hiring one of my team for a keynote, we do some secondary research, we put together some opinions, we talk about everything from like mega trends, industry trends, talk about the the sort of the collapsing industrial complex, consider, you know, alternative futures, and, and start to really work out you know how how the world's going to be um, working, and 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 try and sort of anticipate some of these unforeseen risks that, that go forward. So it's it's quite a deep engagement. But beyond just giving a keynote or some research, I've been doing a lot of training, and and during the pandemic times, been doing a lot of that online using Miro and whatever. And uh, I, I've trained a large amount of people in the past couple of years, actually, in terms of looking at, you know, scanning for signals, um, considering and identifying, you know, larger trends, both to your industry and then the mega trends that affect the entire world. I, I look at things like water, energy, food nexus. I look at waste. I look at mental health. All of these things are, are big sort of structural hyper objects that, that sort of affect the world. And then we sort of dive in and, and do what, what I call what ifs and scenario planning. And those those what if scenarios really help people build stories about our futures. And then we can get into some, some really fun stuff, you know, build videos, write stories, you know, film some things, write some scripts, and, and start li- literally telling the stories of our futures. And that's partly what I'm doing in, in the book that I've written called Facing Our Futures. So it, it, it's not really the brief and deliver against that. It's more like an ongoing relationship. And typically, the length of relationship between me and my, my clients and the team and my clients is, is well over six months. In fact, one client is, is well over a year old. They've, uh, they've done four different engagements. I'm now on the executive coaching uh, around Foresight. And uh, a, a friend of mine was with this aerospace client in Paris um, training 80 people last week. So it's super exciting to see so many people embrace what Foresight and Futures Design can actually deliver to, to seemingly very, very significant organizations. And I'm curious because I think I, I read somewhere, you know, the average tenure of a CMO is 18 months or something like that. Is it challenging to get people to think that far out in advance? Do they still feel that they have a vested interest in, you know, where Coca-Cola or whatever they're, whoever they're CMO for right now, uh, 25 years from now? I'll be honest, Michelle, I never speak to the CMO. I never speak to people in marketing organizations. And I never really deal with advertising agencies, to be honest. I I deal with, um, I have dealt with some PR companies, did some really cool work with Edelman and YVR Airport a few years ago. That was really cool. And they really pushed the boat out uh, 
a great creative director, Ryan Semeniuk over there, who I worked with at Taxi previously, um, did some really fantastic work with me writing some stories. So yeah, we don't deal with marketing. We deal with the C-suite. We, de- we deal with the board of directors, the chairman of the board, and, uh, and, and deal with it all the way down. It makes my life incredibly easy in a way. Uh, plus, it's also fairly fraught. You know, these people have to be looking out to longer futures. Even if you look at CEOs and the tenure and people rewarded for performance, they're typically only rewarded for the next sort of 12 to 18 months in terms of performance. So structurally, organizations, certainly across North America, do not think in, in futures. But if you look out towards Asia and places like that, we've got CEOs that are thinking in terms of hundreds of years. Uh, Masayoshi Son, the famed CEO of SoftBank in Japan, has got a 300-year plan. And, and this is, this is the problem that we've got in society, whether it's with politicians, governmental organizations, or whether it's with businesses, is that we, we've been so short-sighted that it's, it's basically stunting our ability to think big enough to actually have a, a significant impact. And this has caused the, 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 the industrial complex that's failing right now, you know, reliance on oil, uh, like, um, the water uh, we're running out, uh, you know, water scarcity being an issue, um, the energy transition, you know, mental health issues because we, we've forgotten, you know, to treat people well within the the structure of a workplace and whatever. So it, it's really interesting, but I think that there's a real appetite for longer term thinking. And typically, you know, it starts at five years, 10 years. I typically talk about 15 to 20 years because it's more palatable for executives. But once we start getting into deep research and speculative fiction and what if scenarios, it's very clear that these large organizations, if they're going to survive for the next 30 to 50 years, they need to be thinking about who they are in the next 30 to 50 years. Mm, That makes sense. Um, One other question I have just before we get into the tips is, uh, I mean, do you do you go to school for this sort of thing or or are there like more courses and things that have you know, propped up since you have gotten into futurism? Yeah, and absolutely there is. In fact, it, it is, is gaining popularity. I think places like Portland University are, are establishing a foresight course. OCAD here in Toronto have got a really amazing master's in foresight. University of Houston, University of Stellenbosch down in South Africa. There's lots of different uh, future, futures organizations offering accreditations or, or short courses. I mean, I've been doing training, but more specifically for clients and, and more based on a, a specific scenario for the clients. I don't really like to develop courses and sort of, you know, sell them to as many people. I think it's a deeper process for, for me. But yeah, I mean, personally, I've sort of been dragged along in in this sort of, in the wake of, of everything that I was like playing with in terms of consumer engagement, running conferences, coming up with new ideas. But in the past few years, I've sort of formalized that a bit by surrounding myself with amazing mentors like Glenn Heemstra. I, I've got an Exponential Minds podcast where I've been interviewing some of the world's greatest thinkers in, in, in futures, people like Dr. Wendy Schultz, uh, Dr. Joseph Voros, uh, people like uh, Dr. Jake Sotiriadis, who established Foresight for the U.S. Air Force and whatever. So I've sort of been, I, I went from keen amateur, but with a background in psychology, computing, you know, consumer behavioral uh, sort of practices and, and research into this world uh, and and really sort of forged my own way forward. But very much now I 
I now actively lecture at university. So I, I lectured at, at Penn State last week. I used to lecture at UBC. I've given guest lectures to the to, to J School over at UBC and whatever. So it, it's something that uh, you sort of uh, work to, to build out your practice and you get better at, like so many careers. Cool. Amazing. Um, well, well, let's get into it. I mean, how can we gather some of your wisdom over the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes? How, how, how can someone like me think more like a futurist when I have absolutely no background in it? You know, this, this is something that, that's sort of written about in every book or, you know, spoken about by, by you know, every blogger and um, pop futurist and whatever. But I think it sort of boils down. You sort of set me the challenge of saying, you know, what five things can we talk about? Well, the, the, the first thing is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a recognition that we've forgotten the ability to have imagination. And in futures where we say that there's a collective poverty of imagination, it means that we, we're caught in this trap of short-term thinking. We're stuck in the what is of every single day. And we, we, we're really finding it difficult to, to break out of the shackles of the here and now and into real blue sky creativity and curiosity and shifting what I say is like shifting the mindset from what is to what if you know what if the world is going to be different how about we just look at our business throw away all ideas about how we operate today put ourselves 20 or 30 years into into our futures and then think of those horizons and lots of different scenarios based on some of the signals and trends we see today of who we are, how we operate culturally, why we're important. Um, so, you know, that ig ignition of curiosity, exploration and play is super important in really starting to do futures design. So that's sort of the first lesson. And I know within, you know, within the planning community and within the advertising community, you know, we claim to be, you know, creative and we claim to, you know, really push some boundaries. But I, I'll be honest, from my own personal experience, we're still stifled by the timescales within which we have to operate. So it, it's difficult when we're thinking about consumer engagement um, and trying to think about futures. But, you know, you can tell stories about how the world might be and use that as, as a particular way of engaging with people. And it, it's incredibly um it's not only engaging, but it's so inspiring to people. And I've had people come up to me after keynotes and after after engagements, and they went, "Nick, um, I'm 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 either scared or I'm inspired or I have to quit my job." And I literally had someone <laughs> walk out of one of my one of my uh, guest lectures for for a large government client. Uh, this was about four years ago, and they were, "I need to quit my job. This isn't going anywhere, and I need to do something else." Six months later. I was at the University of Waterloo helping them with their um, innovation uh, conference. And that person came to see me and she said, yeah, I quit. And now I'm doing a master's in technical entrepreneurship. Thank you for, for changing my, my mind to think differently about what we should be doing in the world. So that's the first thing, you know, addressing the poverty of imagination in the world is sort of lesson number one, Michelle. So, so if I was to apply that, it sounds like kind of leverage creativity, exploration and play and do yep. that by leaning into different horizons, which may, might be defined by different signals, uh, macro trends, think about different scenarios. I'm curious, where do you go to for these macro trends and signals? I mean, obviously, as, as strategists, we all have our, our, our sources, but do you have yeah. different sources? Well, over the last number of years, I've been I've been collecting 
a lot of a lot of these signals. I and mean, you can go to my website, nicholasbabington.com, and there's over 700 articles. And I sort of find things and share them. You know, I read videos. Uh, sorry, I, I read articles. I watch videos. I interview people. I go out there, do research. I, I work with a company here in Canada called Intentions with the fabulous Nick Black. And uh, we do some we do some primary research as well in a number of different areas, mostly around digital culture. And we collect that. And, but it, it's a collective sort of encyclopedic knowledge that, that that we gather as a practice and um, to bring this all together and you know we I, c- I can cover 30 to 35 different signals and trends in, in each of my keynotes it, it goes at a fairly rapid pace and there's a lot to consider it's the interplay between all of them that, that is really important right so it's it's a constant labor of love but that labor of love is something that's like a, a very sort of uh, active business practice as well and I imagine, I mean, maybe you'll get this, get into this in one of your later tips. Not all of these signals and trends can be equal, right? Like there must be a way to analyze which ones, you know, you think have more credibility to them than others. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good point. I mean, there's a lot of hyperbole out there. There's a lot of people claiming to have created the future. I mean, we're seeing a lot of hype around Web3, the metaverse, yada, yada, yada right now. And it, that's that's very much driven by building some some fervor out there in the marketplace to get people to buy stuff. And uh, and that that's always a bit of a fail in, 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 my, in my wheelhouse. But, you know, we, we have things called like weak signals and strong signals. So a strong signal typically is something that, that's a signal that uh, might be an area of technology like like electric vehicles. And it's a very strong signal because cells are starting to go through the roof and it's going to be prevalent. So that's less of a futures thing. It's going to be something that's going to be nearer, you know, nearer like five to 10 years, it's going to become dominant. A weaker signal would be something like self, uh, self-driving vehicles. Uh, it's weaker because the technology is is quite unproven even though people like elon musk and you know google google's trying to push forward with waymo and whatever are are out there but they're still really early on in research the adoption rates are are almost zero out in the world but we know that it's going to have an impact mostly because of you know other considerations around shortage of labor um the changing configurations of city the 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 facts that the kids don't want to drive anymore um services like uber eats and like lyft and ride hailing whatever not actually needing drivers in the future right you know this is these are occupations that that don't need to be uh undertaken by people right so so that that's a slightly weaker signal but it's surrounded as i said by lots of other signals there and uh, we have to sort of really take a lot of this this hype and hyperbole as as you know be really careful i mean when we're in advertising and marketing you know we'd like to build up these big ideas of what might be but oftentimes it is just to sell something in the short term with futures it's about really qualifying that and understanding the impacts in in, in terms of a real use case in our futures Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So don't get stuck in the short term, uh, you know, acknowledge and kind of move away from this poverty of imagination. What's your tip number two? Tip number two, there are more than one future. So we have to understand that each of us have, have got a particular path ahead of us. And uh, and, and we the decisions that we make and where we go, uh, you know, create a, a, a plurality of our future. So 
we can project what our future might be. And there's some preferable futures, plausible futures, possible futures, probable futures. You know, something called the futures cone um, that we use in, in futures work. And there's a nuance between all of these. But if, if we can explore multiple futures, then we can really understand what might be for, for lots of different groups of people and also individuals as well. The plurality of our futures is really important because oftentimes we're told here's a solution use that solution subscribe and then you're working within the box that's been defined by that company one example is facebook so log into facebook use the mechanisms there you like things you share things your information is gathered it's processed it's used for behavioral targeting and that's a Facebook future. And so that's non-plural. But a true plurality is understanding how people truly operate in a social context within you know, cities, rural areas, within countries, within the world, and understanding that there's you know, billions of conversations and billions of ways for those people to operate and interact. And that's where it's really important to understand, you know, the, the preferable, possible, plausible futures and, and to try and understand the, the nuance between them. There's another P as well, which was sort of added by uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Joseph Voros down in Melbourne. And he added something called the preposterous futures, you know, the futures that we think may never, ever, ever happen. And we have to realize that, you know, some of these strange outliers could actually be possible. So we have to explore all of these things, no matter how strange they are, to, to really realize, you know, what, what the world could be. So, for example, in 1968, you had Douglas Engelbart in Stanford giving the, the demonstration of the world's first personal computer. How could he have imagined that in the year 2022, Billions of people would have super, the equivalent of supercomputers in their pockets with screens that can do everything that he was doing and beyond. You know, so that's a preposterous future. You know, we, you know we're always going to drive cars. We're always, you know, we're always going to eat meat. We're always going to, you know, live in cities. All of these things are so, so binary. It's like we're always going to do this or we're going to do that. But there's lots of shades of gray in, in between. So we have to look at, you know, some positive futures. We have to look at preposterous what i think is dystopian futures and, and that's kind of what i write about in my book so so it sounds like you know not only maybe scenario planning but thinking about the context uh that surrounds us and and, and so i'm curious like what does a global pandemic do to your career <laughs> like it, this way of thinking how do you what do you do with that first it kills all of your work <laughs> first it kills all of your work and then you make some phone calls to some people in some large organizations that can clearly um do with doing some of this futures work and then your business absolutely explodes like my house <laughs> my house in the last couple of years it's kind of interesting 2020 was sort of you know getting back into the consulting practice versus speaking which i was doing extensively and 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 you know buying futurist.com and doing a whole bunch of other stuff sort of came out of that became a fellow of the rsa wrote my book and it just it just absolutely exploded in 2021 this year there's a bit of uncertainty again because the pandemic's going into its endemic phase and whatever but there's still a lot of people that don't know where the world is going and it's becoming even more uh, apparent to them that they have to have these longer views. Towards the end of last year, I worked with a, a frozen vegetable company based out of Europe, a billion, two billion euro a year business. 
I'm producing a huge amount of food and uh, there's all sorts of the, the logistics, the supply chain, the processing of food, you know, agri- agriculture, agribusiness, the whole thing. And uh, we were looking out as far as like 2100 to 2300 to really try and understand what was going to happen to the top topography of, of places like Europe. So, it, you know, these people um, were really open to the idea of redefining what their business could be in, in 30 to 50 years, right? And to understand, you, you said context. It, it's the people within the context and it's the systems within the context. And it's, you know, the, the data flows, the transformations, the stories, the, the interplay between, you know, you as a producer and the suppliers and the partners and the consumers as well, right? So it's it's, it's been really interesting to see, you know, what's happened in the pandemic. Uh, my, I, I still would have been doing, you know, 2,000, 3,000 person gigs in Las Vegas. Everything would have been rosy. I probably wouldn't have focused down in as much as I have done into my consultancy. But I'll be honest, Michelle, things are a lot better for it. And now the work that I'm doing has got a greater impact. And, you know, working with these C-suites and uh, board of directors in the most in, in the most part in, in these companies really is starting to make a huge difference for the companies. And I've seen, you know, companies like Google that I've worked with, you know, suddenly start to make some moves based on the work that we did behind the scenes at the beginning of the pandemic. And it's very, very good. I'd imagine that people might be even more open to these so-called preposterous uh possibilities or scenarios given what we've just been through in the last two years and yeah. could potentially go through in future. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, this is this is uh, when, when we start thinking about post-normalcy. We're sort of in this world of the future is behind us and, and sorry, the past is behind us and the future is ahead of us. And we're in this sort of weird liminal space of post-normalcy where we don't know which who we are or what we're doing or how the world's going to be shaped. And the pandemic's been very good at making us feel sort of nervous and uncertain and anxious. And that's not necessarily a good thing. That's just the, the way it is. But something like a pandemic is, is known as a, you know, it's a known unknown, or, or we, we call it a black elephant. Uh, a lot of people use the term black swan, but and I don't think that, 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 that that's exactly what this is. A black elephant is that thing that's been staring you in the face and saying, hey, I'm over here and it's, I'm going to pop up at some point and I'm going to cause a huge amount of disruption and potential collapse. The black elephant of the pandemic uh, has been around because we've had pandemics like for centuries, but even in the last... 100, you know, 105, 110 years. Everything from the Spanish flu to the Hong Kong flu, um, AIDS, MERS, SARS, all, you know, avian flu within animal populations, the foot and mouth disease in, in, in livestock in the UK. I went through all of that sort of stuff. It's been staring us in the face. So we're suddenly surprised. All these governments and organizations, you know, had run scenario planning around this and then it hit them and they forgot you know, what they'd done and what to do and how to, you know, even be prepared. So I think the preparedness of the world is going to lift up right now uh, because we can't, we can't really deal with another situation like this and, and, and be in a very good state. It's been incredibly tough for everyone. And there's lots of people still in the world having a really bad time. My family just had COVID. Everyone around me's got COVID. This is the endemic times and that's fine. And everyone, you know, the majority of people are, are managing to do good out the back of that and, and move on with their lives. But, you know, the nervousness is, is, is pretty obvious uh, out in the world. So uh, it's, it's interesting to see what's going to happen in the next uh, two to three years. Hmm. 
Okay, so recognize or acknowledge there's more than one future. Uh, yep. What's the third tip? Yeah, so number one, poverty of imagination. Number two, plurality of our futures. Number three, and I touched on this, is um, framing our exploration on both positive futures and also dystopian futures as well. We don't like looking at the worst of what could happen. We just don't like it. Um, whether it's through uh, the, the bias that we hold um, to, to ensure that, you know, we, we, we're always operating in a very safe space, the short-term thinking that we have, the fact that we can't even um, bring ourselves because it's too um, stressful and traumatic to explore bad or dystopian futures. You know, we've always, you know, painted pictures of positive futures and it's great, but it makes me sick to my stomach in a way because we've missed so much evidence of, of what we should be considering. So when I think about positive and dystopian futures, I've got positive dystopian framework as part of my book, looking at those signals and trends, but also doing that through a lens of two different kinds of sets of principles, the positive principles being, you know, um, humanity ahead of technology, equity, all that good stuff, and the negative, which is like profit over people and the such like. And then looking at signals and trends and all of the scenarios and putting it through those filters and looking at the impact of culture and environment and social so, and, and societal norms and technology and policy and regulation and whatever brings us out to these two different pathways and two different sets of stories that end up intersecting again, where you've got a world that is, it's messy and complicated and feels real. And that, that positive dystopian trajectory interaction, it, it creates this, this world and these, these stories that we can tell that we, we, we can see how to build it but we can also see the risks that come from doing it badly or making short-term decisions or, you know, being greedy and egotistical as companies or individuals or whatever, right? So, you know, that's, that's the sort of the third thing. Look at the positive, look at the dystopian, mash them together and see what falls out the end because it creates these, these big future scenarios that are really raw, really visceral. You can understand and empathize with the people and systems that are parts of this. And that's really valuable for organizations to understand. So I'm curious, when you do your consulting work uh, for some of these uh, companies that we mentioned before, and, and, you, and you're doing this, this framing work, or you're looking at the plurality, plurality of futures, for example, then is there like an action plan or something that comes out? How do you then prepare them for what what whatever may become so and that's a fantastic question because what happens is it's like so what at the end we've got a bunch of nice stories and where we're going and and what do we do with that so there, there is actually something that we can do in terms of looking for what i call uh, in my framework strategic considerations so you might have um a scenario in 30 years of your company and you might be a company that's focused in water energy food and 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 you're you're looking at that and it's like okay in the future we're going to have decentralized energy we're going to have these mega cities we're going to be growing food in our cities we're going to ha be having younger populations that aren't necessarily using any form of of driven transportation beyond bicycles and walking you know everything's going to be you know this automated luxury consumerism sort of uh, world that, that a lot of people are looking at 
And when we do that, what can we take from that as evidence? And it's like, okay, there's infrastructure, there's societal change, um, there's the use of data and sensors, there's all the all the good technological aspects as well. But also there's organizational mindsets, the investments that we make today in early stage technologies, and a number of different things. And I always say to clients, it's like, what part do you want to play in creating the futures that are going to be the most powerful for people in the world? And it doesn't mean that suddenly you have to start a research division and building technology from scratch or whatever. You just need to know who is really onto something good. You know, venture, venture capitalists say that they're sort of good at this stuff, like sniffing out opportunities, but even they're not long-term thinkers. But you, you might be a, you might be a company that that's, that's stuck in the industrial complex around oil. So you might be a large company that produces a huge amount of oil. And today, you know that in 30 years' time, your, your business is going to be obsolete. So what do you do? Do you ignore it? A lot of people are, which is very disappointing. And some companies are thinking about, okay, how do we play a part in establishing new infrastructure and weaning ourselves off of that reliance you know, from a business perspective? So, so it's interesting. These strategic considerations can literally uh, fall out of the back of these, these scenarios and stories and onto the page. And then we can start to play that against where we are today and see the delta and the delta might be huge and it might be fairly insurmountable. But then once you start going from, say, 2050 back to 2022, you can start to see that the steps, and this is back backcasting, the steps that need to happen structurally, generationally, uh, you know, the maturity of society and how that needs to change. And it, it is complicated and it is, uh, is very involved. But once you've actually got this, like, this reverse roadmap, you can really start to make different decisions about what you're doing today and still have relevancy in that 30-year time, time scale. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Makes sense. Okay, so framing your exploration on positive and dystopian features. What's your tip number four? Yeah, so tip number four is to take these uh, these what if scenarios, and uh, there's a there's a huge uh, creative community about crafting speculative fiction and experiential futures. So. Uh, People like Superflux uh, and, and people like Dr. Stuart Candy look at a lot of the, this kind of stuff. Yeah. Telling stories. I, I love the artist uh, Tom Sachs. He, he uses something called sympathetic magic. So whilst he can't go to Mars, he can build his own Mars mission out of, uh, out of paper, old TVs and plywood, and he can have that experience. And so creating these experiential ideas of what the future is allow us to be able to walk through these environments or look at art or watch videos and you know maybe even <clears throat> read books and, and, and watch science fiction films to understand what might happen. It's incredibly powerful. It makes uh, a lot of things come to life. A lot of clients say, okay, can we do this? You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, it costs money. You have to invest. And we know this from, uh, you know, a uh, consumer engagement advertising perspective, creating content, telling these stories, you know, takes investment. From, from a futures perspective, you know, you can really see how this can influence people. We see a lot of speculative fiction, experiential futures in the context of museums. In, in universities, in like Parsons School of Design, uh, I went to about three years ago to the uh, Primer Conference. You know, all these students doing these like crazy experiential futures. I did a conference a few years ago called uh, From Now, and it was in 2014. And I asked everyone that bought a ticket, it's like, you know, what's the world going to be like in 2050? And all these people came up with these crazy ideas. And I worked with a designer uh, to 
create these these artifacts that might exist in the future. We literally took things from like dollar stores and things that we found in workshops, painted them, built, put them together and gave them a narrative and gave them a title. And it sort of uh, really inspired people to think about what the world could be. That design has now gone on to do some pretty crazy stuff down Silicon Valley with, uh, with Tesla and Neuralink and a whole bunch of people. But it's interesting being able to write stories and being able to build experiences that take us to those futures. It, it, it's really, really important. And if you just Google speculative fiction or experiential futures, you're going to find a lot of people out there that, that are doing this. I mean, I've got an entire um, chapter in my book called Igniting Imaginations, which is all about this. And I don't think we should ignore that work. It's also something that's very difficult to sell because, it, it, you know, to build an experiential uh, – context whether it's in a museum or within your company does take time and money so i'm i'm curious you know you when you talk about crazy ideas because i kind of feel like or maybe this is just me but generally it seems like people and maybe this goes back to your first tip i think are somewhat predictable and boring i mean we, we all kind of generally have the same sources of information um you know that the typical thing if you'd ask someone to create a, a transportation method you know years and years ago they would have said a faster horse versus a car like you know again maybe this does go back to your poverty of imagination where do you go to ignite that? I mean, you did talk about the signals and trends and stuff, but then you go, I like, I think about some of the crazy shows and movies and things that are out there. Sometimes these authors, I think have incredible, like, I, like Handmaid's Tale, the, the whole time the pandemic was going on, I was like, well, this is actually <laughs> hitting a bit close to home. Um, do you, do you ever look to, I mean, you probably do like science fiction, uh, books, movies, uh, films, shows, et cetera, for, for, uh, uh, stimulus. Yeah, absolutely. We do. I mean, I, uh, HG Wells back in the day, great science fiction writer said, you know, in an article in, in the early 1900s, we need a university of, of foresight practitioners, right? You know, and, and we need people to have this, these wild ideas. When you look at the stories that are told by everyone from like Neil Blomkamp, and he's done some really, really cool stuff with his Oat Studios, smaller spec futures pieces, all the way through to like bigger productions like Minority Report, which is famously from a Philip K. book, uh, Philip Philip K. Dick um, short story, um, and then Blade Runner, whatever. All of these, all of these things will really do feed in. And obviously, we've got Neil Stevenson and Snow Crash and the Metaverse, uh, quote unquote, and people like William Gibson and, and what he was doing with Neuromancer and c- Cyberspace and whatever so you know we have to look to these people to be creative is is really really important i think if you if you are a futures practitioner you have to write this stuff i've got an entire chapter in 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 my book that literally is is a story uh and it's a story about a girl called jocasta and it is everything from like nanobots and and new san francisco that was destroyed in an earthquake and was rebuilding and it's all about water energy food and a mysterious organization called organization x that wants to rebuild the world and an underground society of biohackers called citizen that also interplay with that from the positive negative this you know sort of uh, trajectory perspective uh so yeah you know the we we do need these people you know w- watch as many movies as you can really do go one step further i've got a great friend here in toronto called uh, dre lebray and many people that are listening would know dre uh, amazing creative director he's a futurist um he's, he's got something called uh, 
strategic science fiction. Um, and uh, like he explores new ways, you know, through card games and through exploration of of looking at you know design fiction and design futures that, that are really wild and really interesting. And uh, I think you know we can really start to step that up in in the work that we do. Um, so. So, yeah, we do need to have those reference points. And I think that they're really important, especially if we step forward and think, okay, if we're going to write a story, whether it's a short story or it's a novel, or if we're going to build something that's an experiential future, you know, how do we really dial that up to 15 and have something really incredible that pushes our our thinking further? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So tip number four, uh, have I captured it correctly? Was it lean into these what if scenarios? Is that the, is that the tip? Yeah, uh, well, no, it's it's crafting speculative science fiction uh, and, okay. and experiential futures. Yeah, so the poverty of imagination, build build on that with plurality of our futures, build on that by exploration of positive dystopian trajectories, and then build on that again by undertaking exploration through cr- speculative fiction and experiential futures, yes. Okay, great. Uh, last tip, what have you got for us? Yeah, so we've we've kind of touched on this, and you asked a question about this. It's about uh, backcasting and saving how for last. So, you know, I spoke about, you know, finding these evidence from positive dystopian trajectories, you know, the risks, the opportunities, the challenges, the people, the transformations, whatever, and then creating this um, backward-looking roadmap. That's exactly what backcasting is. There's a lot of people, and this is what happens in a lot of the sessions I run with clients, is that, they try and work out how they can build things today. And uh, we have to stop that. Because if we do that, we're ultimately colonizing our own thinking and restricting it by the things that we have to hand. And if we look around ourselves, we've only got things that exist in the in the here and now and not in our future. So we have to stop thinking about how do we build it? For example, you know, how do we build fully automated swarm farming operations? Well, we can do this. And once you get into the how, you're literally thinking, well, we need drones. We need to write this software. We need to have these sensors and whatever. And you end up with something that's just a really you know, cobbled together average solution based on the technology of now. Whereas if we start to say, okay, let's forget about how and let's imagine what this can truly be. And it's like fully self-sustaining, you know, 365 um, swarm farming operations and, and new ways of growing food in vertical farming, out in the fields with new strains of whatever, cellular protein, you know, really blowing the doors off of everything. Then we're unrestricted in our thinking. So that's really important. So, you know, backcast and saving the how of you know creating our futures until last and sometimes you, you're not even gonna have that idea of how you're gonna create it you're just gonna be able to tell the story take that to the world and then have a dialogue and see you know what comes from that as well I've done that really effectively with a number of clients amazing so where where would we go to to find out more because i feel like you've obviously we've only scratched the surface on all this uh should we go to your site will there be some sources uh for how to think more about the future yeah so um the 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 new futurist.com is going to be going live in the next week i've been working on that for a while i'm I'm working with a fantastic team um alison garnett and her team at a field field trip here in toronto so uh, they're fantastic individuals um there's also uh there's about 700 articles there written by you know my mentor glenn heemstra myself and and other other members of the think tank as a there's a there's a number of things that sort of uh talk about you know methods and processes and subject areas and how to think about 
about different futures and different industries. You can also go to my website, nicholasbabinson.com. And again, over 700 articles and, and lots of things that I find interesting. So, you know, whether it's um, short speculative fiction videos, uh, whether it's uh, like stories I've written, um, whether it's just collections of signals that I think are really worth paying attention to. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for for coming on. Uh, You definitely have left us with some things to think about and, and things to look into further. Appreciate that. Thanks so much, Michelle. And um, the people that are listening, do reach out. Do do come and uh, um, come come to one of my websites. Hit hit on the contact and and reach out. And uh, I'm always happy to connect. Also, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. So, more, any questions or you want to know more, you know, uh, the doors open. Amazing. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share this episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.